podcast called uh, Dub Jellyson Podcast. He probably doesn't remember this at all. Yeah, we work together. It's easy. This is kind of real. I call it shit. And so it's really cool to get to be a part of that. Hey, you know how it is, bro. Hey, when you... You now tune into the biggest ever. We're not here just to take part. We're here to take over. <laughs> I don't remember that. That's crazy. What's up, everyone? We're back with episode 158 of the Dub Justin Podcast, bringing back another former guest, Nolan Carroll. Nolan, how are you? I'm doing well, man. How about yourself? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for, for coming on and doing this again. Uh, I mean, we talked last time uh, I had you on, we talked about how crazy the offseason has been, and then <laughs> and then it just kept on, kept on, kept on keeping on. Um, but before we talk about that, what have you been up to since, uh, since we last spoke? Yeah, since we last spoke, man, I've just still been recruiting, still been building Jacksonville Athletic Academy, still trying to get recruits in. That's a never-ending battle when it comes to recruiting because the thing I'm seeing now is, is kids are feeling entitled. You know, Kids don't care too much about the grit and the grind of, of trying to achieve and, and going to Division One and going to, you know, hopefully the NFL. It's more about what do the jerseys look like? You know, what's the facilities look like? And it's at the end of the day, guys, those are the least important things. You know, at the end of the day, you got to earn a right to to wear the jersey. You know, you got to earn a right to get on the field. And then, you know, those other things start coming. But mm-hmm. what I'm starting to see is that part of society is is showing kids that the end result is what you need. So you you want that. You want to skip steps to get there. So it's just, it's just us changing the narrative, which we've been working on and doing. That's why we have this uh, – collegiate program because we want to be able to teach these kids this is the way to do it to be able to get to the top and if you really want to get to the top there's some things that you got to sacrifice to get there and it's not all easy it doesn't take one day it doesn't take one week it takes a few years to really go all in on yourself and and achieve great success and, and be able to get to the league or be able to get a scholarship to to go division one and want to be like those guys that you see on game day that are swagged out those guys that show the workout videos, you know, during the off season, those kids want to be like that, but there's a process and there's a way to do it. So we're, we're slowly still teaching not only kids, but the parents, the coaches as well, too, in the air, well, the areas that I've been in, how to go about it. So it's, it's coming along, you know, we're starting to get some bigger schools, some power five schools. I just talked to one of my buddies at you know, university of Virginia two days ago. Another one of my coaches that I had uh, that coached me in Maryland, he's at Hampton. Just found out I have a defensive coordinator that's out in Arizona right now. So I'm starting to get my connects back in, in the football mm-hmm. world and, and reaching out to them. And they reached out to me because they've seen what we're doing here. So it's been great. It's been good. I, I love doing this because it's something that I'm giving back. It's a way that I can use my football experiences to to help other people. And then YOLO rum is, is always YOLO. Mm-hmm. You know, people love to drink. People love to party. <laughs> we we uh, actually just went to Panama uh, not too long ago to – check out our new facility we constructed it we put a we put a quite a bit of good money into it so just to see it now is, is great and still got my podcast going and that's really about it with me man just staying busy and I'm being a dad as well too so life's been good I can't even killing the game man yeah. you got a bunch of different things going on yeah I mean kind of to go back to your to your earlier point I had Steffi Sorensen on uh, a week ago I think and she she was talking about the whole NIL thing and, and how kids are getting entitled, um, kind of the same sentiments that you're sharing. And she said that she took a picture with with an athlete. She didn't name her. And um, this girl said, my my audience likes it when I'm more casual. 
I'm like, what the hell does that mean? I mean, that just showed that 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 paints a perfect picture of how these these athletes are coming up and and kind of what they're thinking about. They're not thinking about like, oh, let me talk to this person because they've they've been through it. I mean, yeah. MVP, all all these different things. I mean, they want to look cool for Instagram, you know. And you know, it's 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 funny that you say that because I'm hearing that from these coaches that are at these bigger schools as well. Like these kids are not, they're no longer interested in what's important. They're no longer interested about the educational aspect of it. They're no longer interested on, you know, how's this going to benefit me 15 years down the road? You know, kids can't look that far and they're only thinking about the bling. They're only thinking about how can I get an NIL deal? How can I get money while I'm in college? And how can I get my fame up instead of worrying about what I need to do on the field to be able to get that? Because that's how it was for us back in the day. It was if mm-hmm. you played well, that's how you got the sponsorships. That's how you got the deals. But nowadays it's, well, you got to pay me when you haven't even really proved yourself. If you haven't made it to the league, what do you need an NIL deal for? Like, honestly, what, what, what's <laughs> if you haven't played at the top. I'm not saying you're not worth it, but at the end of the day, that's, that shouldn't be the first thing that you're looking at. Let the work on the field speak for itself so you can attract people. Like you're, and we, we would always hear this, you're, resume is on film what you put on film is what you're sending out and selling as yourself as the player and if you can continue to do that consistently people are going to want to pay you people are going to want you to be a sponsor people are going to want you to talk people are going to want you to get involved in different things different companies and that's how we need to start looking at it again instead of the opposite way let me get the money first and then you don't provide value later it's it's kind of it's backwards now i don't know who you guys kind of target when you're recruiting, if it's under-recruited guys or um, maybe someone who didn't have the grades to go to go D1, because I know that's a common theme in JUCO or or had off-the-field troubles or or whatnot. But, I mean, you look at so, so many of the guys that have gone JUCO and then went and go, gone and played a year or two at in the SEC, ACC, Big Ten, wherever, and then their first-round pick, you know. Um, so, I mean, that's that's – that's laying out the blueprint for you at the JUCO level and what you guys are doing um, to help you later on. Pretty much you're, you hit the nail on the head. That's what you know, a lot of guys think JUCO and they look at it as frowned upon because of whatever mm-hmm. stories, whatever happened with uh, that show on Netflix, what's it called? Uh, Last Chance You. Mm-hmm. And it just show like the worst case scenario, which is not even true. You know, if, if you can get a kid to come here, at least where we are at JA, come to a nice environment, come to a place where you're going to get coached by guys that have done it before in all walks of life. We've had guys that have gone the Juco route, guys that didn't go the Juco route, guys that had to fight injuries, guys that had to go from Juco, then to CFL, and then found a way to get to the NFL. Like we have all of those things. So for us, it's giving back that experience to let them know this is the way to do it. And if you can be patient enough and be consistent enough to know that this is how it's going to go. I need to believe in the process. You'll be able to get to the NFL. I, I really honestly feel that it's easy to get there if you believe you can get there. Like if you believe you can do it, then it's possible. I, I kind of, this is the first time I'm really talking about this, but when I was in the fourth grade, I remember writing a note because my teacher asked us, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. I remember writing a, on a sticky note and I remember putting it on the bulletin board. I said, I want to be a professional football player. At the time, I never played tackle football. All I played was recess. That was it. And I just remember that vividly, but that's what I wanted to do. So my actions follow that as I got older, putting in extra work, competing against the best guys, going to camps, being able to 
always every single day put the best plays on film because I knew that a team was going to want me. Some college was going to want me out there. And once I got my foot in the door, I was worried about graduating. Once I worry about graduating, then I can start worrying about the NFL. And that's how we're trying to show them here. If they can just do that and just listen to us. All they have to do is just listen a little bit. Mm. And we, I'm not saying I'm guaranteeing anything, but the opportunity will present itself if you do what we tell you to do. Mm. It's hard for, for kids. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I'm only 22 to mm-hmm. try to look at the bigger picture. Cause like, I mean, when I was in, when I was in high school, I played baseball. I wasn't even thinking about getting recruited or anything like that. I was just kind of focused on, on in the moment, making the team doing whatever. But I mean, nowadays, I mean, you have to start looking like 15, 20 years ahead yeah. and trying to figure out, what'll be best for you in the long run. And it, I mean, it's true. It's, it, it really is tricky. I think um, we rip on these athletes sometimes. Um, I mean, sometimes for good reason, but I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to try to navigate everything and all the temptations that, that come, come through with NIL and, and all that different stuff. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think it'll get set as far as the rules and everything in the next couple of years. I just, it's so new and certain states adopted it by themselves independently that's why you're seeing all this craziness but I think once it's all adopted by the NCAA and every school in the nation you'll start seeing regulations on what you can do and what you can't do yeah no doubt um so I want to transition to a little bit of the NFL uh draft talk since we missed that um for you starting off for you I mean coming in as a late round pick fifth round pick I mean what kind of mindset did you have to have because you weren't that first round pick with, with guaranteed money. Like, I mean, you're, you're fighting for your spot from day one. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, but I I had that chip on my shoulder because of my situation. So I broke my leg my senior year in, at Maryland and I knew it was going to be an uphill battle, but at the same time, I knew that all I needed was a chance. I didn't care if I was, my grade was like a second round grade at the time, a second round late first. And I was fine with that. You know, I broke my leg. I was unfortunate. But at the end of the day, I still knew it doesn't matter if I'm first round or undrafted. As long as I get my foot in the door, I'm going to compete. And it's just so funny when I did get drafted, it surprised a lot of people because they didn't expect me to get drafted at all whatsoever because of the situation. But once I got into Miami, the first thing I thought about was competing. I didn't care who I was going against. I didn't care what the situation was. I didn't care how hot it was there. I didn't, I didn't look at any of the numbers. I didn't look at what the coaches were saying. I just knew that I need to get in my playbook. I need to do my job. I need to be on special teams. That's how I make the team my first year. And I worked at that every single day. I just remember, remember just looking at Brandon Marshall, like I have to card him. Like I have to go against him because he's the guy. And at the time he just got signed to us. I guess he's kind of like a, a big deal. So when he's out there, I'm like, look, the only way I could really make the team is if I show that I'm making plays against a pro bowler. And if you get a chance to ask Brandon, I was trying to find him as much as I could. And I had to hold my own, but Brandon, look, Brandon's a big dude. And, and I got a lot of experience going against Brandon those the two years that we were teammates. But he made me so much better my, my first year because I knew what it I needed to do to be able to get on the field. If I could play against him, that means I could play against other guys in the league. And if I could play against other guys in the league, guess what? I'm going to be on that field. And that was just my mentality. I just need to not be scared. I need to not think about numbers, not what coaches are saying. I don't care if, you know, I'm one week I'm starting or one practice I'm, I'm with the ones. And then 
the next day I'm with the threes. I don't care. As long as I'm out on the field and I'm making plays, those coaches are going to see it. And the one thing I, I, I try and tell guys that are, are coming in the league for the first time is find your special teams coach. Mm-hmm. Like that's the guy that you really have to get great with. You have to be best friends with him because if it comes down to you and another guy and that other guy can't play special teams, your special teams coach is going to vouch for you because he knows you're a needed asset on the team that can help them as well as be on defense if you do need it. And Coach Rizzi, it was Coach Rizzi and it was Coach Phipp that was there. Coach Rizzi now is with uh, the Saints. And then Coach Phipp, he was with Philadelphia. I was, man, I was close with those guys like all the time. I did exactly what they wanted me to do when they wanted me to do it. And it worked on the field too, because I was making plays in special teams. And then towards the end of the season, we had like five games left. I just remember my coach, he just threw me out there. We were playing Cleveland and he's like, hey, Nolan, go in. I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> so it, it was just fun to do that. And I played well my rookie year, just, but I was able to put in that work. I, I, my mentality was, I just need to compete every day. I need to show up every day. I need to stay healthy. I can't go out, can't hang out with my boys. I don't think I went out, probably went out maybe three times my rookie year. And that was it. I was just that focused to, to fight the narrative of, and Nolan's just a project guy. You know, if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, we just cut him and we find somebody else. I hated hearing that. So I always had this chip on my shoulder to prove to myself that I could play with these guys that were older than me, more experienced and had experience in college and coming in with the hype because I had no hype coming in. You know, I was just this guy that got drafted because they thought whatever they, they thought, it didn't matter in, in my mind. I just knew that I needed to come in and, and just win. That's all it was. Well, that year, I mean, I was looking at it. You and Rashad Jones, mm-hmm. um, I think – I don't know if he's a sixth or seventh round pick. I can't remember. No, we were both in the fifth round. Oh, both in the – I mean, two home runs at that at that yeah. stage of the draft. But then, I mean, I don't want to disrespect him, but Jared Audrick was your guys' first round pick that year, and he didn't really pan out. So, I mean, it's – I mean, I mean he, I, I don't want to say he's a bust, but yeah. he didn't – he didn't give the the level of like what what you would want out of a first round pick, I guess. It was tough though for Jared because he it was a stacked team, man. We had Cameron Wake, we had Randy Starks, Paul Soliai, and I think on the opposite side we had uh, shoot Jason Taylor came in there. So I remember I forgot mm-hmm. Jason was there. So it's like, look, Jared's a D tackle, but at the same time, you got two studs that are pro bowlers. Actually, I think three of the guys on the line were pro bowlers uh, for like three years. And it's, it's hard to get into a groove as you're a guy like that. You're, you're really the second guy, but I think that draft class was a, a pretty solid draft class. If you look at it now, just mm-hmm. 12 years later, we had a good class. We had guys that stayed in the league for quite some time. Guys that, you know, you're saying Jared, Jared played, I think six, seven years. Uh, Cole Misi, he got drafted in the third round. I think he played uh, seven years. can't remember who was drafted in the second round. It might have been Cole. Cole was drafted in the second round. Third round was uh, John Jerry. He played for about seven, eight years. Um, A.J. Eads, he tore his ACL, and he couldn't really get to where he needed to be, but he was a pretty good linebacker. Then it was myself, Rashad. I played eight years. I think Rashad played nine or ten. I, I think he played ten years. Yeah. And I can't remember our sixth-round guy or seventh-round guy, but the draft class as a whole and our undrafted guys, Marlon Moore, uh, Roberto Wallace, we had some strong guys in that that draft class that stayed around on the team in Miami, but as well in the league that was able to do something. 
yeah, I mean, it's it, it's mind boggling to think of like what you guys as late round picks had to go through, and like in the back of your mind, you're thinking, okay, they these coaches, these GMs, whatever, they don't owe us shit. I mean, it's, it's no sweat off their back to to just cut us, you know, um, if if we're not out there performing. But um, I mean, how did you try to? How did you have to fight that to stay locked in and not and not think about um, what could happen? So most of the time, guys look at too much. Like they start looking at the end instead of looking at just that one day. And for me, we had two days. We had the original two days when I first came in. And I just remember thinking, all I have to do is prepare myself for this practice. Don't worry about the second practice and how hot it's going to be and all this stuff. Just worry about the first practice. Worry about an individual drill. Worry about what's in the install, install for special teams, what I'm going to be doing, what team am I going to be on first, second, third, and just play ball. That's all you have to do. And make sure you're taking care of your body. Those are the things that, I did on a daily basis and I just took it one day at a time. I didn't look at, all right, it's Monday, man, I can't wait until we get to Friday or because we had no breaks. It was all the way through. It's not like four days, one day off that you get. It's you're practicing. And for us in Miami, the first day we had our conditioning test, which was three, 300 yard shuttles. And that was crazy. And then two hours later we had practice and, and it was like 110 degrees. So that really, you had to be mentally tough to play in Miami. Like that was Tony Sperano did not play. And a lot of those guys were from the Dallas crew from before Bill Parcells was over there. He was the president. So he had the tough mantra. He always wanted to make things tough to see which guys could survive. So I just told myself today is going to be the toughest day, but once you get through today, you can worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And that's just what I did every single day. I didn't worry about, what players were saying about, man, it's, it's hot out here. Or players saying, man, I, I was third today on the depth chart, man. I, I think I might get cut. I didn't worry about any of those things. So those guys were talking negative. I kind of removed myself to get myself in the mode to think positively every single day just to attack a practice, attack a meeting, attack a walkthrough. I always wanted to be in tune because you never know. And for me, I think the best situations that happened to me throughout early in my career was I was always ready. And if somebody went down, I was the next guy up. It just always happened. And I always was able to be ready for my opportunities every single year that I was in Miami. And then finally, my last year in Miami, you know, I was really given the keys to, to the car, per se, and, and I showed what I could do. But I was through every single year of preparing and being straight and being focused to, to be able to get to that point to where they trusted me enough to, to really start making plays. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure you saw the whole thing with Ryan Tannehill and, and Malik Willis, how he said, uh, it's, hey, it's not my job to mentor him. Um, I mean, did you have – do you have anyone that was maybe in the secondary room or, or I mean, anywhere on the roster that helped mentor you and maybe some of the other guys in your class? Yeah, it was – I had a lot of help from, from guys. Uh, Carlos Dansby was a guy that helped me out a lot. Channing Crowder helped me out a lot. Jeremiah Bell helped me out a lot. Randy Starks helped me out. I had some good quality guys because my situation was this. They drafted me to basically be a nickel guy. That's what they wanted me as his first. And Will Allen was the starting nickel. But Will Allen, I think, tore his ACL the year before, and he was just not coming back. And he had some more knee issues and knee problems. So guess what? I'm the guy up. So it's basically have Vontae Davis, 
Sean Smith, and then you have this rookie. And Fonte and Sean were drafted the year before. So they're second-year guys. So I could only go off of their experience what happened last year. Mm-hmm. But the other stuff that I needed, I couldn't get from them as far as what to anticipate. And that's when Carlos helped me. That's when Channing helped me. They would o- I would always be working with them in tandem, whether it was motion across, trying to find the number three in the backfield, just so we could be able to pass off things and be aware of routes. They really helped me understand that from what an offense wants to do on, on their perspective and then what we need to do as a defense because – my head was going all over the place my first year, but they really were able to help me calm down and see the game from a perspective that was a, that let me anticipate things and be able to play. So I was definitely, I was definitely glad I had those guys in the locker room that were, they pushed me and they made sure that I knew what I needed to do to make plays. Now, when you became, when you kind of got established and became a vet in the league, did you try to look out for the younger guys um, coming in and be like, all right, this is what you look for. This is how we do things. Uh, don't do this, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I, I did. And it, it just, as the years go on, you start seeing yourself and you're like, well, I'm the older guy now. And I remember my last year uh, in Miami, we drafted two corners in the second and third round. It was Jamar Ter- Taylor and Will Davis. And the first thing everybody was saying was, oh, well, no one's going to get cut. Once again, I'm not worried about that. But I wanted to help these guys because I knew right away there was pressure on them. These are high corner draft picks. They're expecting them to play right away. And I remember with Jamar because he's my locker buddy. And Jamar was real hesitant as far as relationship with him and myself. Because I, what you hear is some vets tell rookies the wrong thing to mess them up. So it makes the, the vet look better. And my case, I was, I'll tell you anything you need to make you better. If you ball more than me, hey, look, I'm not supposed to be here then, but I'm going to help you be the best player you can so you can execute when it's your time to be on the field because you never know. Somebody else could go down, and then now you're on the field with me, which ended up happening. We had one of our corners go down. I think Brent went down for a little bit. And, look, I'm looking across the field. I see 22. I'm like, Jamar, let's go, man. Or I'd see Will. I'm like, hey, man, you got to lock in. You got to focus. But – they, at the same time, they trust me because I was able to let them know, hey, look, it's second and three. They might run the ball. They might be, it might be quick game. It might be something like that. So just be aware of it. Look at the formations. Look at the personnels. And they trusted me with that because they knew we established a relationship of where I was telling them these things beforehand. And even in games where they didn't play and they were inactive, I would ask those guys for advice. Hey, what did you see on the field? How is he releasing? You know, what, what's the cadence? What, give me tips so – you can help yourself. So when you get in the game, you're ready. You know these things as well, too. So I was just always trying to give them that knowledge. And then when I went to Philly, I had a bunch of young guys, uh, Jalen Watkins, Ed Reynolds, um, Eric Rowe, Ja'Cory Shepard. Like there were a lot of guys that started coming in younger. And I started, I'm looking at it now. They're like, yeah, you're the old guy. I'm like, well, all right. So let me just teach you guys the same thing because it's going to happen again. You all are going to play because I was in that same situation. I was that young guy. They got thrusted into action. It's just a revolving door. It's, it's, it's always going to be a cycle like that. They always want younger guys to come in and play it right away. So why not just help them? Because at the end of the day, it's a team game. And your success is my success. If the defense is balling, you're going to say the defense is balling. You're not going to say one guy. They'll probably single one guy out that's making plays. But as a whole, when it comes down to defensive stats, it's a team game. And that's where I was my mentality was always team first, and I wanted to make sure the guys around me were well equipped to be able to go out and, and play at a high level. Now, 
when you said that some vets will tell rookies the wrong thing to mess them up, did, I mean, did you experience that? Did you like see people doing that? And, and, and how did you kind of approach that? Did you like say something to them like, Hey, mm-hmm. like, what are we doing? Or did you kind of just distance yourself from them? What's funny is I would hear stories before I got to the league, but when I got to the league, I didn't really see that like that. I would, I can't imagine somebody telling you something to mess you up and then them feeling better about themselves. Like I just, I never could fathom that. If it's, to me, you're just scared of competition. If you're going to do that, you don't really want to win. You just want to make sure you're secure. If you're not really trying to go out and compete for your job, how are you really going to get better? How are you going to really find out what you're made of when you have somebody else that's just as athletic as you, has the same skill set? What's going to differentiate you from him? Is it going to be your work ethic? Is it going to be the way you study? Is it going to be the way you find little tidbits on the field to give yourself an advantage over that person? It's all healthy competition. You know, it's it's not, oh, well, he made a play. Now I'm hating on him. If anything, he makes a play, I'm congratulating him. Same with him. If I make a play, he's congratulating me. That makes us better. That helps us compete more because, look, the next time we're both out there, guess what we're trying to do? We're both trying to make plays because we know we can feed off each other. And that was the thing that, I saw in the league. So I did not see that stuff. But like I said, I heard it before I got into the NFL, but I never experienced it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, for you guys, as a vet teaching the younger guys, I mean, even if they do like become on par with you, I mean, the coaches are going to, coaches and players are going to notice that you guys are being great leaders. Yeah. And they might keep you around, make you captain, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. I mean, the, the best example I can think that of a team that does it the best is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Like if you really look at it, they had it well at the time when Joe Hayden was there, Joe mm-hmm. Hayden was helping a bunch of these young guys that were there. And then obviously before Joe, it was uh, Ike Taylor, Ike Taylor and, and uh, what's his name? Uh, Troy Palomalu and, and then uh, Ryan Clark. Those guys were helping William Gay. And mm-hmm. you know, it's just one of those things where you just see it where they're leading by example, because if you look at a team and you look at what they stand for and who they are and what the identity is, you want that to carry on. Even after you retire, you go to another team, you still want teams to talk about the identity of what the team is. And give you another example, Seattle Seahawks, the Legion of Boom was created by four guys, Uh, Cam Chancellor, Earl Thomas, um, Brandon Browner, and Richard Sherman. They still talk about it now to this day, but that's the standard of Seattle's defense, at least on the back end. So when guys get signed, well, the first thing they say, they're trying to compare them to the old Legion of Boom yeah. because that was the standard these guys set. And they knew the guys, the younger guys that would come in, this is what you have to do. If you want to play on this defense, we're going to hold you to a higher standard and make you more accountable to make plays because if one of us goes down or we leave, we want to keep this legacy going. And that's just the mentality of it all, you know, is really an NFL team or at least what I'm saying, telling you as far as a, a defense. Mm-hmm. Go back to the Steelers. I think they should be America's team because, the, I mean, they're they're perfect. You know, like the the history and, and, I mean, Mike Tomlin's never had a losing season in year whatever it is, almost 20 years in the league. I mean, it's yeah. insane. Yeah, it is. It, it, it just is a testament to the culture. That's really what it comes down to. If you can establish a great culture in football, you can do, you can stay in the league for a while. And what you start seeing is with teams is 
the culture is there's it's no stability with the culture and they've been able to keep that shoot since Terry Bradshaw basically if you think about it they've always kept that standard because they still continue to talk about the steel curtain and how it used to be as a defense and how they used to be as an offense with Franco Harris and all those guys and you just see it still to this day you look at the Steelers and you're right they should be America's team but Dallas has more money so it's gonna be America's team for the stable future yeah for sure um so I want to talk a little bit about the wide receiver trade since since we last spoke. Um, I mean, the I mean the overall theme when we last talked was I mean everyone's going all in, um, making trades and signing people. Mm-hmm. I mean these wide receiver trades have been kind of tricky um, yeah. for that though because Green Bay ships out Devontae, the Chiefs ship out Tyreek, and then um, the Titans ship out AJ Brown. Um, why why do you think that they ended up? those teams decided to, to move on from those guys. I just really think it comes down to money. They didn't want to pay him. They don't want to commit. It's just funny to the league. They won't commit money to a guy that's balling, but they much rather put their money into a young guy for cheaper. It's just the NFL thinks that way. They know that like Tyreek Hill, I think he was drafted with the fourth round for a third or fourth round, mm-hmm. maybe fifth, something like that. I think the chiefs think they can get another guy or they have the pieces with Scantling. And I think they also signed Juju Smith-Schuster and they signed another guy. I forgot his name uh, in the second round, I believe. So they are second. Sky Moore. Sky Moore. So I think that they see this as, well, we're getting three for the price of one. We don't want to pay Tyreek again, but Tyreek's one of those guys that's generational talent. If you just look at the last game that they played, and that was a playoff game against the Bills, he was the real reason. I wouldn't I wouldn't say Patrick Mahomes, even though Patrick Mahomes got him the ball, what was Tyreek Hill doing run after catch? Mm-hmm. He was housing everything, basically, and it seemed like you couldn't stop him. So to get rid of a guy like that, you got to kind of question, is it the money or is there something behind the scenes going on? And the stuff with AJ as well, going to Tennessee, I, that's one of those I can't understand because AJ was Tannehill's favorite target. And it's just interesting to see this year coming up what they think Tannehill can do. Are they really going to put it in his hands or are they just going to say, look, we'll let Derrick Henry run the rock and we'll, we'll just let you manage the game. It's just one of those things where you don't really know a team's mindset until the season really starts going. And I just think that all these trades have been happening, even with Green Bay, I still don't even get that there. They're kind of flip-flop now. Defense is stronger than the offense now. It used to be offense was yeah. stronger than defense, and now I'm looking and I see it on paper. The defense is going to keep them in some games, and they're not really – I just think they're trying to take pressure off of Aaron, but at the same time you just added pressure because you don't have those same weapons that you did before. Now they have Lazard. They signed Sammy Wack- Watkins, but I think Sammy's played in a year, I believe. So it's just mm-hmm. one of those – kind of just roll the dice, man. I, I think yeah. they're – it comes down to numbers because if you want to pay a guy, you'll pay him. If you really want him and you think he's that important to your team, you pay the guys. But I just think it it really comes down to money and them thinking four or five years down the road, are we going to have more money to sign bigger guys or key pieces that we need if the time comes and we can't commit to one wide receiver because now this is like a spread league. It's four wide receivers now. Even the tight ends are receivers. So I just think they think if we can have threats – everywhere on the field, even running backs, we don't need that one guy. If we have multiple guys, 
it's hard for you to double somebody. It's hard for you to key on one guy, and especially have a quarterback like a Mahomes, like a, a, a an Allen, like a Justin Herbert, guys that if one's not open, they use their legs to get open and they find somebody else. They know those guys will get them yards. Why not pay $30 million for a group of four as opposed to $30 million a year for one guy that can get doubled? That's that's just how I see it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, talking about those, those high-end quarterbacks, I mean, we've seen Tom Brady – go out there and and throw to no names and still win i mean do you think that's what the the gms and the coaches are thinking about when they have that mahomes or rogers or allen or herbert like you mentioned they think all right these quarterbacks are just going to lift everyone around around them and i mean we don't we don't need that top number one guy yeah i think they do that i think they are going more towards that so it takes less pressure off of them and if you have a number one you don't as a young quarterback, you have a great number one. Everybody's going to tell you, look, throw it to him because he's your security blanket. He's the guy we paid the money for. We drafted you to throw the ball to him. So, and I'm going back to just how I was with Tannehill when Tannehill was in Miami. And even when Carson was in uh, Philly, when going back to Tannehill, we had, uh, I think it was Brian Hartline, Mike Wallace, who's our big signings. We signed for like 60 and Brandon Gibson. But when Mike got signed, everybody was thinking, look, we got to get it to Mike. We got to get it to Mike. And, and it kind of made Tannehill feel hesitant because he's like, look, I, he's not open. I don't care how fast he is. I don't want to force the ball to him. I got other guys that are open. And, you know, it's just one of those things you don't want a rookie to think about making a mistake because you'll make a mistake. But now if you have guys that are just everybody's even across a playing field, and I mean running routes, being able to catch, being able to give you that big playability because I think now you're seeing a lot of receivers have that big playability in them. It's not rare anymore to, to have a guy that he's just, he blows you away. I think there's every guy in the league is now capable of doing that. It's just who can get on the ball and quarterbacks go with the hot hand. If a guy's feeling it, look, you can turn him into a star. You, you can make that guy, the guy basically. Mm-hmm. And just prime example is Cooper cup, man. It, it's just, he became the guy. Even, well, he was the guy when uh, golf was there. They were trying to connect with him, but it was Robert Woods as well. But then when uh, Matt got there, he's looking for him. It didn't. He didn't care that was outside. He's still looking for Coop the entire time. And you see what happened. Coop went from this third round guy to shoot. He's probably he's the top receiver in the nation, the the uh, the league really. You know, he's he won the triple crown. So it's just things like that. You you really see who shows up amongst the top talented guys that you want, that you feel comfortable with, that you want to keep going to. And I think that's just what you see instead of a, a coordinator telling a quarterback, just throw it to him, let the quarterback dissect the defense, see what he likes, what matchups he likes, and then go for it. And then let him move the ball down the field. Let him be the general, really give him the keys to the castle. And you're starting to see that with the younger guys. Now it's no longer, let's just kind of spoon feed them. Let's make it okay. They throw you out in the fire and just let you go, man. That that's the best way you can learn. That's the way you get better. Mm, I think that's especially true of of Justin Herbert. I mean, he's he's had the key since he got there. They freaking punctured Tyrod Taylor's lung, <laughs> yeah. which was crazy. That whole situation was crazy. But then it, it it's unfortunate. It was probably behind the scenes stuff, but it's that's football, you know. Hey, fair enough. Fair enough. You know better than I would. It's um, but yeah, um, 
And then, I mean, Hollywood Brown also went to went to Arizona, which which was very surprising. But I mean, you see all these all these teams drafting wide receivers in the first and second round. I, I don't even know how many win. I think it was a record, though. Yeah, I think it was somewhere around in the first round. I think it was like eight. Some, yeah, something crazy. Crazy. I know so those three guys from Ohio State mm-hmm. went top 10 or something like that, or top 15. But that just shows you how talented those guys are. If mm-hmm. you're getting receivers like that, especially those three guys, all of them were 1,000-yard receivers. I think all almost had 10, 10 touchdowns at Ohio State. It's just one of those things where it's, wow, either, you can't go wrong with either one of those weapons. And you just start to see the dynamics of the league and how it's changing. But back to what you're talking about with, with Arizona, uh, just with Hollywood Brown, I think he's just out of fear. I just think if you look at it, um, DeAndre Hopkins, they announced that he got suspended six games for, I guess, PEDs. And just looking around, they were just like, well, who's the guy that we think we can go after? I I would see A.J. more than Hollywood Brown, but Philly made the move. They got him, which is a big signing for Philly because I think they that whole offense just changes the dynamic now. You have a guy that you have to account for on the outside, which – they haven't had in a couple of years. You know, Deshaun was there, but it wasn't the same. Now you have a kid that can run. They were running the ball very well uh, towards the end of the season. That's Philly. But back to Arizona, I just – Hollywood Brown's got to kind of prove it. It's, it's going to be hard to prove just because when you've never really been the number one guy, like you've never really – yeah, you were a first-round pick. Yeah, you have home run ability, but the number one, like the the guy that you're – you look for all the time, like a Devontae Adams, like a Stephon Diggs, like you're looking for them – and they catch the ball, it doesn't matter, it's double coverage, fourth and three, you know, you're five yards, you, you need to get a touchdown in the end zone. Like, those are the things that I look at as a receiver, that number one guy that, as a DB, you're thinking, I don't know what this guy's going to be running right now because he's throwing everything at me. I can't really get a gauge on him. It's not necessarily fear, it's just that unknown because he's just giving you so much in his arsenal. I just don't feel like – Hollywood Brown has it yet. I think it's there. He'll get it. And it just all depends on the rapport that he builds with Kyler. So that's that's just another thing you got to kind of see and and watch how that progresses during the season. But I all these some most of these moves, it really, like I said, it comes down to money. That's why you see a lot of these receivers shifting to these different places because it, it just really comes down to that. These these GMs don't want to pay these receivers. Mm-hmm. And then the the damn Colts haven't done anything with receivers. They signed or they drafted Alec Pierce, which I mean, I didn't love it, but I mean, I'm, I'm going to trust them right now. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, Pittman, right? Yeah. Well, I think he he fits the mold of what um, Matt Ryan does. I, I think he's that drop back guy, that RPO. Matt Ryan really, him and Aaron Rodgers are the guys that kind of him, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady were the ones that really perfected the RPO stuff. And I think that him being in that offense with Taylor. I read some crazy stat, uh, I guess, yards after contact or something. He, Taylor was like number one. After 310 yards plus, he was number one in yards after contact. All you really have to do, if you're Matt Ryan, you're going into your 15th year, you just have to hand the ball off. Let him run. Just go ahead and manage the game. You don't have to do anything crazy. And I think Matt Ryan gets it. And I think he fits the mold of that offense. And you'll see weapons ha- you'll, you'll see weapons come out. Matt Ryan will start to to figure out who his guys are. He's very good at that. I've I played against Matt Ryan since college, so <laughs> I say he I, he's able to identify those things. He'll be able to identify them, and I think they'll be they'll be decent. I, I just think they got to compete against 
Jacksonville. Jacksonville kind of retooled a little bit. Um, uh, also, to uh, I don't Houston. I don't really see as a threat right now because I think they're still in the rebuilding stage. Um, who's the other team in that division? Uh, Tennessee. Tennessee. I just think it's a toss up. I really think if if Indy can just beat Jacksonville, compete with Tennessee, at least split it in Tennessee, they can go to the playoffs. They had a chance last year and they kind of let it slip um, to Jacksonville. So that's why I say you got to sweep Jacksonville because if you – I just don't think if you don't, then I think Jacksonville ends up winning it because this division, it's a quiet one, but it's the most wide open just because of a lot of pieces that have moved and, and been moving uh, just with this, the division, the AFC South. So we'll wait and see how it looks, but I would really put my chips in with, I would say Colts first. I would say Jacksonville second, even though I'm from Jacksonville, people probably hate me, but <laughs> Jacksonville, I, I think is a strong one, a one B I would say that because Jacksonville has some tools that they didn't have last year. Travis ATN was a guy that was hurt. Trevor Lawrence wasn't taught well by Urban Meyer whatsoever. Doug Peterson is a guy that is there now, be able to help him, but we'll see with Indy. I, I just think Indy's a 1A, Jacksonville's a 1B, then you got Tennessee, and then you have uh, Houston. Now, that's surprising. I didn't think you, that you, you'd think that highly of Jacksonville. Well, I, I do this year because of who's coaching. That's yeah. the only reason why. I know Doug, and I saw what Doug did with Carson, and you saw what Doug did with Carson in 2017 before he tore his ACL. Yeah. So – me knowing how he is as a coach and who he has coaching to help uh, Trevor, he's getting so much experience because you're getting it from a guy that actually played quarterback, won Super Bowls. Like he won a Super Bowl playing and he won a Super Bowl coaching. So that in itself is going to help Trevor a lot. And just having those pieces, just having an ETN, even they signed Christian Kirk. We'll see how that, that progresses. They did enough on the O-line to get it structured to protect him. Defense is still the biggest question mark, but I think they'll be all right. I think they'll be decent. But the biggest thing is that offense. And Trevor threw for like 3,600 yards last year. And I think he was top 15 in, in passing, which is not bad for a team that I think they lost 11, 12 games, something like that. So it's not bad. I think they lost, ended up losing like 14 or 15. Oh, my bad. 14, 15. But <laughs> uh, yeah, they went two, it was like two and 14, right? Two and. Yeah. Yeah, something. Yeah. Anyway. They they have the tools. It's just they didn't have the right coaching staff last year. It yeah. was just a lot of turmoil they were dealing with more so than the field stuff. But they showed the potential, and I think just this year they can put it together with because they had the right coach. Mm. And now, what do you think about the whole urban thing? With I mean, he he kind of tried to approach it as like as if he was still at Ohio State. Um, from what I've kind of gathered, like I, it just it, it was just a horrible fit, and then. Um, he had it seemed like he didn't have any respect from the locker room as well. Yeah, it, it's hard when if you look at it, the places he's gone or he's been at, it's always been controversy. It's just mm -hmm. wherever he goes, it seems to follow him and he's never really addressed. It. He's always kind of run away and he's been protected by whoever. And finally, it came out that stream players bad players don't have his respect and I just didn't think – at first I did. I thought it would be a good fit just because what I had seen in the NFL for college coaches their first year coming in and making a splash and being able to solidify, you know, their mindset, their mantra around offense and running gun. I saw it with Chip in Philly, and I was just giving them the benefit of the doubt that it probably worked. But 
he took all that stuff from Florida, all that stuff from Ohio State and brought it with him to Jacksonville and it caught up to him and the team didn't respect it. He lost respect to those guys. And really after that, that stuff that happened in Cincinnati, I would have probably fired him. You know, I wouldn't even waited and lingered at all. I would have just done it right away and just try and retool it early. You know, I wouldn't have let all that drama go that long because if you look at it, Jacksonville is more known for the scrutiny behind it than the actual building that they're trying to do. And I think it, it just comes down to them not really doing their research, but they did, they got it right this time. I, I think Doug is, Doug's the complete opposite of, of who they had last <laughs> year. So I, I definitely think it it's, it's a good fit. Yeah. They, I mean, they've become like the laughing stock of the league. I mean, them and the lions, unfortunately <laughs> for them, you know, um, yeah. I mean, you can't really point out any, like, good good moments that they've really had as a franchise besides that one year Blake Bortles took him to the AFC Championship game, which was, that was insane. That was crazy. Yeah, that, I it was unexpected, too, and, and they should have – I think they should have won, but it is what it is. They There was a couple of things that they didn't do in the fourth quarter that if they did it, they probably went to the Super Bowl, but – neither here nor there. Like you said, you know, only time you really think about Jacksonville being good was that year. And then it was the year the Rams and Titans went to the Super Bowl. I can't remember what year that was, but Jacksonville was 14 and two. And that was the last year Jacksonville was 14 and two and they lost the Titans twice. And the Titans, I think it was 99, I yeah. believe. So it was 99 when they were 14 and two. And that was probably the best record Jacksonville ever had in, uh, in the franchise history. So it was hopefully they can get back to that just with the pieces that they have. Like I said, I, I just think it's – Doug is the one that's going to be able to lead them and coach them the right way. They just have to buy into a system because it is one that – it's a little bit of a culture shock of what they've been used to. They've been used to just freelance and doing their own thing, and it shows on the field. Now you get a guy that's structured and demands respect, demands excellence, demands you to do your job the right way. So I think you'll just see a different mentality from the Jaguars now and from what I saw from this year to even now and, and talks and just seeing what's going on in practice – I think it'll be better. Mm -hmm. And last thing before we wrap up here, how, how do you think that Ahmad Gardner and, and Derek Stingley are going to, are going to do at the next level? Those guys went three and four in the draft. Um, I think Stingley was a bit of a bit of a surprise. It's because he hadn't put it all together since that freshman year. But mm -hmm. I mean, sauce Gardner's a dog. He's yeah. a killer. Yeah. I, I think sauce Gardner will be the guy. And I just, man, all the stuff he did in college was just incredible. I think his completion yardage was like under 10 yards. Like that's <laughs> unheard of. Like honestly unheard of. That's, I wouldn't say he's like Revis, but they're going to put him in that category. Like they're going to expect that from him. And I think he's ready for it. I just think that you look at the body of work, you look at who he is, where he's going, what he's done in college he'll be successful. And Salah and that defense, they were all right. You know, they had a few mistakes, but they were still learning. That team was young, man, like really young. And if you look at it now and the moves that they made just as a team, I think, shoot, they'll, they'll surprise some people. They've given Wilson enough weapons now to be able to do something. And then you let Sauce do his thing. He's probably going to be on the number one. And he's playing in a division that, if you look at it, not too bad. He's got a – Tyreek, of course, he's going to have to probably cover him. When it comes to the Patriots, probably put him on a number one, whoever that might be. It could be Nelson Aguilar. Shoot, it, it could be just you stay on your right side. Then you look at Buffalo, probably going to be on Diggs. Jamison Crowder is there now too, so we'll see how that works out. But I see him on Diggs, so I think he'll he'll do good. 
you know, I really think it uh, as as a corner, you go that high, there's a lot of expectations, but he's ready for it. So the other guy I don't really know too much about, but Sauce, I've been watching him for mm-hmm. from quite some time. And I, I became a fan you know, real quick just because of what he's been able to do. And it went under the radar. It went really unnoticed. And I think because of where he played, people yeah. didn't give him enough credit. I guarantee if he was at Florida, if he was at USC, Notre Dame, he probably went number one. I really think that Jacksonville probably would have took him. But the fact that he was at Cincinnati, it was a little bit harder climb for him. But you saw, you saw uh, towards the end of the season, you even saw in the playoffs, he did his thing for the most mm-hmm. part. So good for him. I just think he'll, he'll be very good. He'll, he'll surprise a lot of people at, at the position for this first year. And he didn't even – his teammate won corner DB of the year. Yeah. Kobe Bryant. Yes, that's who it was. And yeah, he's Kobe, good too. Uh, Kobe's with Seattle, right? I believe so, yeah. Seattle. So I, he'll work well in that in, in that system because they play – their thing is three and cover one. And the thing I like about Seattle, and I talked to a lot of my buddies, a lot of my friends played for Seattle, uh, Cliff Averill. Cam Chancellor, Byron Maxwell, Chris Maragos. And I would ask those guys, what made y'all so special there? What made you guys be able to play the way you did? He said, in practice, we only ran things that we knew were going to beat us. We didn't throw everything out there and try and cover it all. If we knew it was going to beat us, why run anything else that we know is not going to beat us? So that's what they only did. They only worked on their weaknesses and they made them into strengths. And then you saw that when they played out there. So Pete Carroll's the one that was coaching those guys. And Pete Carroll's still there. And Pete Carroll's got a top talent. I don't think they drafted uh, a corner since, what, Shaq? Shaq was like three years ago. Shaquille. Shaquille Griffin, yeah. So I don't really think he panned out too well. But I think this guy's a lot better than him. He's got more upside to him, and we'll see. I think that's the piece that they need as far as, like, building that Legion of Boom again and and getting it back there. They brought back uh, Diggs uh, as well uh, back there at safety. He was a pro bowler last year, so. They got weapons. They got things that are do- they're doing it the right way. People are questioning what they're doing, but they're rebuilding. It's it's apparent they're rebuilding, but I think they're doing it in the right way, a way that they're going to make noise to try and compete in the NFC West because that thing is stacked now. So, mm-hmm. okay, I have, I do have another one that pops in my head. I mean, we've seen this off season with uh like Jair Alexander just got paid, Denzel Ward, J.C. Jackson. How high do you think that ceiling is going to go for cornerbacks? Um, You're going it- up. <laughs> I'm glad though because the corner market was it was always dictated off of something stupid. Like it was always dictated off of well, he did it last year, can he do it this year? And they would never really pay guys what they needed to be paid. And it's like, man, I gotta prove myself again just to try and get a medium-sized contract. Now you're seeing the guys that they're playing well, they're getting big contracts. And I'm I'm glad once again it got reset by Jair. It's just going to get reset again. It's just going to keep happening and happening and happening because what you're going to find out and what's going on is four wide receivers outside. You need to have guys that can cover. And there, it, it's no longer 12, 21 personnel like it used to be in the past where it was just base defense. Most of the time you're opening up your games, you got to have three corners on the field for nickel. Mm-hmm. That's your base defense now because then you got to worry about tight ends that are pass catchers. You got to be able to. See if you can put a corner that's fast enough to be able to stop the run, but as well drop back and pass. And, hey, look, if he needs to, you got to be able to cover a receiver. you got to be able to cover a tight end, whatever it may be. And you're starting to see that now. So these coaches, these GMs are starting to put more importance on corners than anything else. You know, you see safeties getting paid, but not as much as they used to. He has to be a, a baller to get paid 
You're seeing rush ends getting paid a lot, but now it's the back end guys that are getting paid because they're understanding that importance that we can't just pay one guy and then just kind of wish for the other two. We got to pay three guys and look, they got to play. So that's, mm-hmm. I'm glad that it's happening this way and people are starting to understand this is a hard position to play in football. It's not the same for the weak hearted because <laughs> there's people that, look, you can have a guy catch one pass, everybody will think about just that one pass, but you can have two picks in the game. They don't care about that. It's such a scrutinized position that they want you to be perfect. And there's no perfect game ever. Like you, you just can't do that at the corner position. You're going to give up plays in games. You're going to give up plays during the season. So I'm just glad that it's now reset. It's just going to keep going up. I don't see it dipping at all just because of how the league is going. Unless Bo Jackson comes back or reincarnates and he starts running the ball 280 yards a game. I don't see that happen. I just see the dynamics of, of football going to a pass-happy league and staying that way. Mm. And and to your point, I mean, Trayvon Diggs had like, what, 11 picks last year, and then people still rip on him for, for giving up some of those plays, you know? He said that, well, he gave up 1,100 yards receiving yards. I'm like, so what? It's high risk, high reward. It doesn't matter. He had 11 picks. Who has had 11 picks in the league in the last decade? It hasn't. The, the closest person was – uh, Xavier had his year before, but before that, I think it was Antonio Cromartie back in 07 or 08. Yeah. So it's been hard to even get close to, shoot, if you get six, seven picks, people are like, oh, wow, but he got 11. So I don't care about how many yards you gave up. He had 11 picks, and they still went to the playoffs. So at the end of the day, he was an impact player. He was a guy that almost won defensive player of the year, too. Mm-hmm. So you don't concentrate on the bad. You just look at more of the good and what he was able to produce and I think you'll be able to do somewhat similar to it again because he was man played man to man majority a lot of the time and the coach is there now in Dallas. He was my coach in Miami. He was Al Harris, and all Al loves to do is play press man. So I, it, it's only you can see why he was so productive because I know Al and Al is like, look, it don't matter how many yards he has in the game, but if you lock him down, you have your two picks and we win the game. Just learn from your mistakes and we go to the next week because you're gonna play better. You're going to learn. And for him, it was a sec- this is going in third year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's third year. So his first year, he got hurt. He had a, he had a foot injury, so he didn't yeah. play the whole season. Came back, balled out. His third year now, I just expect more from him because he's more confident. You don't see that from a second-year guy. Mm-hmm. I'll be excited to see, I mean, if when he's due up for a contract, see if he gets the bag. And then if Amad Gardner, Stingley, or um, Kyrie yeah. Elam, and, and Trent McDuffie, I think those were the four cornerbacks in the first round this year. I mean, see how high they can go if they become guys. Well, we'll see in five years because now everybody's exercising that five-year option, trying to give themselves a buffer. But Trayvon will set the market. I just believe somebody's going to pay for him. Hopefully Dallas does the right thing and keeps him there because they need him. They do. Their defense was not the same without him on the field. They just weren't the same. So they – just need to go ahead and give him the bag, reset the market again. You can probably get over 100 mil. I, I really believe that. Probably 120. Yeah, and that that would be insane for for the cornerback market. Well, um, but like I said, I'm a I'm a wrap this thing up. Thank you so much again for coming on. Oh, um, I'm excited for uh, what we're gonna cook up in the in the uh, season too. That's definitely gonna be fun, man. I get to talk some ball a little bit more, which I haven't done in in, in a little bit. But it'll be good to converse and we can start talking during the season because it's just funny there's a lot of things that come up during the season that people don't really focus on too much as far as 
know, when teams are losing or what's going on behind the scenes. And last year when I got to look at it, I started remembering the scenarios that we had when teams were 0-7, like the Dolphins started 0-7. I was in that same position. and They ended up winning seven games straight, and then the playoff race, I was in that same position. So I know what it feels like and how you have to turn it around. Also, on the other side where you win 10 games and you still don't go to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And one of those things, like the Chargers, you know, it's just one of those things where it comes down to the last game of the season. You can't put it away. It's just those things we get to talk about, and that, that's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Can't wait. Definitely, man. All right, man. Have a good one. Are right, you too.